This is Film Focus with Emily Cook. Welcome to the eighth episode of Film Focus. In this episode, I'll be joined by my co-host Sarah and we'll discuss the new release, Absolutely Fabulous. Our special guest joining us a little later has over 30 years industry experience and is highly accomplished multi-camera director, Peter Minora. Having directed the BBC Proms, he'll speak to us about the craft of directing live TV, reveal some industry secrets and divulge his top tips for anyone wanting to break into the industry. We'll also let you know of any filmmaking opportunities and events on the horizon. We'll be checking in with Sarah and her 500 film challenge. And as if that wasn't enough, we're going to be joined by our resident cultural commentator, Ash, who will talk to us about the importance of the controversial, raw, and often shocking films of the dogma movement. I'm joined once again by our resident film fan, Sarah, who watches at least seven feature films a week. She'll be updating us on her 500 film challenge a little later. Hello, Sarah. Hi, Emily. How are you doing today? Excellent, thank you. I must say you're looking very brown. Thank you. Just got back from Turkey. So, you know, it's, it's wonderful to look healthy once more. <laughs> Excellent. A large amount of this episode will actually be video-based, so if you're near a computer, tablet or phone, we advise watching the video version on our Vimeo page, which is vimeo.com forward slash channels, forward slash film focus. And of course, we're also now on iTunes. Simply search for Film Focus on your podcast app. Anyway, back to the show. Let's take a look at the featured film this week. I think I am now officially fatter sideways than I am front on. No, you don't need those. I am your mirror. How do I look? Fabulous. Thank you. Absolutely Fabulous is the latest British comedy from BBC Films and director Mandy Fletcher. It tells the much-loved story of characters Patsy and Adina, who after being blamed for a major incident at an urban fashion launch party, become entangled in a media storm and are relentlessly pursued by the paparazzi. Fleeing penniless to the glamorous playground of the super-rich, the French Riviera, they hatch a plan to make their escape permanent and live the high life forevermore. The film stars Joanna Lumley and Jennifer Saunders, who also wrote the screenplay. What did you make of it, Sarah, sweetie darling? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, AbFab, I'd say, wasn't my favourite TV show from the 90s at all. I much preferred things like Fry and Laurie and Bottom and mm. all of those kind of things. Um, and I'm really not keen on seeing TV shows being made into uh, films because I think they rarely work. But I thought, you know, I'd roll the dice, I'd give it a try, see what I thought of it. And I have to say, you know, it's frothy, it's fun, it's silly. I also really liked the way that the filmmakers gave them much more of a well-rounded character. I think they were quite caricature-ish mm -hmm. and I think you get to know them not a ton more but a little more a little bit more yeah it's, it's, it goes into the characters and their backstories a little bit more. yeah absolutely well interestingly I think it was a, a major triumph for BBC films I think they did a fantastic job with it mm. um, Joanna Lumley in particular her performance was absolutely flawless and that coupled with Jennifer Saunders writing it's just a match made in heaven I thought it was obviously lovely as well that, that it's a very female-driven production uh, yeah. with Mandy Fletcher directing and Jennifer Saunders writing. Other than Simon Pegg, the majority of the um, lead actors are actually all women in this film. I yeah, think. absolutely. Yeah. The cameos, everything. Yeah. It's, it's very female-driven, isn't it? I went to see it with two guys and they actually didn't feel that it was too female orientated topic matter at all, although it's the fashion industry which historically has been more of a female arena. They mm. really enjoyed it and also one of those people was from Holland, 
So hadn't actually seen the TV series, had none of the cultural background that we have, but he really enjoyed it. So good as a standalone as well for anyone Absolutely. who's not even seen it before. Yeah, so don't be put off if you haven't seen the whole thing. But basically, I think it was a, a super fun film, but full of twists and turns and a great laugh. I and mean, also, after all the problems we've had recently in politics and in sport, yeah. a bit of a nice antidote, I thought. Exactly. A bit of fun for everyone. Each episode we discuss a film genre, theme or topic and this week we're talking about the controversial avant-garde film movement Dogme, where the director doesn't get credited and sexual acts are depicted for real. In this film segment I catch up with Ash, our resident cultural film critic, to speak about the exciting and often misused Danish school of filmmaking, Dogme. You may have previously seen Ash's work in The Guardian or The Spectator to name but a few publications or seen him in regular international and national television appearances. Dogma 95 was a filmmaking movement um, created by Danish directors Lars von Trier and Thomas Vinterberg. And it was based on a very tight set of 10 rules which were designed to get back to the essence of what filmmaking is about. Um, Ash joins us today to talk to us about it. Hello, thanks for joining us. Hello. Hello. Um, so can you tell me about the origins of uh, Dogma, how it came about? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think you have to look at the historical context of the time. So across the filmmaking world, there was a sort of a reaction to what was seen as the excessive corporatism in filmmaking of the 1980s. Even in Hollywood, you had uh, a movement that was sort of kicked off with Steven Soderbergh's Sex, Lies and Videotape, which went to Cannes in the latter part of the 80s. It gave birth to the indie film movement, Kevin Smith and his Clarks, uh, which is one of the sort of seminal uh, slacker movies of the time. Mm -hmm. You had Tarantino, of course, that emerged from that resurgence in American indie. Uh, and Robert Rodriguez, the quintessential filmmaker with the camera on his backpack. So this was sort of the European version of that, mm -hmm. I would suggest. It was sort of a, uh, a sort of student filmmaker reaction to what was seen as the excessive glossiness of the archetypal, <coughs> excuse me, Hollywood movie. Um, so it was, this was about no professional sets, no professional lighting, not even professional actors. It was about unplugging the essence of the emotion, shorn of all of the veneers, the layers that film studios said you had to have on film. And for that reason, it was, in a sense, it was a bit of a reaction, it was a bit of, a, it was a bit of an in-joke in many ways. But I think it was an important movement, and that's why it's, it's worth thinking about even today. So we're going to go through um, one or two points of the 10, ten rules that uh, were part of Dogma. So um, shooting must be done on location. Um, there can't be any studio or any props or anything brought in. But the Dogma attitude was, well, why not? Yeah. You know, wh why shouldn't you just whip out your camera and start filming and film that emotion? Yeah. Capture it, you know. And, and it was unique and it's liberating, should yeah. I say. Absolutely. Um, also, sound must never be produced. Um, it has to be uh, the sound that's taking place at the time. There can't be music added in or non-diegetic sound um, put in place. Um, it's and it's really interesting, and just to pick up on that, it's really interesting, isn't it? I mean, if you think about something like Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, the stabbing mm. scene, where there's mm. sort of this big sort of this dramatic uh, orchestral <laughs> music, exactly, yeah. Now imagine that scene without that music, just the simple... Uh, hor horrific uh, vision yeah. of a woman being stabbed in yeah. a shower without yeah. all of that. It kind of makes it more raw. Makes it much more raw and when done well in the right hands as we'll see with some of the films we're about to go through, uh, it, it, it's devastating in its emotional intensity. Mm, absolutely. Um, also the camera must be handheld which for any filmmaker presents a few problems because obviously 
um, you, you want to have a steady shot. I mean, that's what we've got used to. And obviously now if we see handheld footage, it seems a lot more real, perhaps. Yeah. But also um, we want to have higher production values. So people often want to rig cameras on cranes and get those kind of different shots, which Dogma obviously was against. Also, the f film must be in colour. It must not use filters. Optical work is forbidden. Yeah, and the, co the, the colour thing is really interesting because your archetypal Scandinavian art house film is always shot in black and yeah. white. You know, you think of Bergman and, you know, these sort of art house films about existentialism and death, mm. and they're invariably in black and white. So again, Dogme uh, actively eschewed, actively shunned that kind of stereotype. And, that, mm. and, and that's, that, it was interesting from that perspective as well. And quite brave as well to go against something that people um, are used to as I, well. I, I think they were having fun with it. You know? Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, it's filmmaking. It's not meant, yes, it's serious. And it's a serious business. Yeah. But why, why not set these rules up and see what people do with them? I think. Yeah. Um, interesting though, it says that, that you, there aren't to be murders, but there are often sex scenes that take place. And those sex scenes often happen for real? They don't have to happen for real? No, so, um, well, in, again, from the manifesto's perspective, the reason that there couldn't be murders is because you can't actually kill someone on a film set. Oh, of course, because <laughs> yeah. nothing can be, everything yeah. has to be real. Uh, whereas you can uh, depict sexual intercourse and indeed have actors engage in sexual intercourse uh, on a film set. Uh, some of the most controversial dogma films have depicted uh, live acts of sexual intercourse. and. Uh, so uh, The Idiots, which we're going to go through in a second, has a couple of scenes where that sort of thing happens. Mm. Um, what's interesting is Lars von Trier, who's now very much, uh, um, you know, he makes films in a massive studio mm. in Denmark that's very well equipped and set up. And yes, he uses lighting. Yes, he uses yes. special effects and all the rest of it. Uh, but he still depicts um, sexual intercourse as happening between actors in his film. So in The Antichrist, for example, which was booed off at Cannes a couple of years ago, uh, that happens. So, you know, it's, I, I suspect, as with the rest of the dogma movement, part of it is a sort of, it's an in-joke, it's done with a bit of a smile, mm. a bit of a sort of sideward glance, and a nudge and a wink at the filmmaking establishment, the serious yeah, art yeah. house film critics. Yeah, that, that you yes. Know. And Absolutely. if you can't have fun with sex, what can you have fun with? <laughs> um, also, it says that the, the genre movies are not acceptable. Um, the film format must be Academy 35 millimeters. Finally, the most interesting one is, I think anyway, the yeah, director should not be credited. Yeah, I totally agree. This is the most interesting. I mean, but, but, but they are credited because we know who made them. Yeah, you're right. And, and, and I think, again, we, we come back to this recurrent tension between a manifesto as a statement of perfection mm. and what actually needs to happen Absolutely. if you want to progress your career or if you want to actually uh, get funding to make another film or whatever. Yeah. But I think that's the most political bit of it. Um, I mean, Scandinavia, historically, a very egalitarian uh, group of countries, um, you know, seen as a place where social solidarity is at its highest. Mm. Dogme, in a sense, is capturing that, I think, by saying, look, we are a collective, we, we are an aesthetic collective. And we're not going to abstract individuals as if filmmaking is some yeah. act of individualism. Because the it's rules, not. well, to, per this manifesto, it's mm. not. But what the rules are saying, the rules sit above the inspiration of the individual. Mm -hmm. The rules exist as a kind of set of laws that bind mankind. And that's what's important to the dogma mm. movement. It, it sees filmmaking not as some expression of genius, the auteur movement of 
the Stanley Kubricks of this world who are very sort of obsessed with personal control and individual control. Mm. Or indeed the big uh, budget studio movies of the 80s that came out of Hollywood and around Europe. This is about something else. It's something more socialist or communist mm. in nature. And again, from a political perspective, that makes it quite interesting. So Ash, you're kindly going to talk through um, three of your favourite or best examples of uh, dogme cinema. Yeah. Um, so which films have, which, what's your first film that you've selected that we're going to look at now? The first one is Thomas Vinterberg's Festen. Okay, let's have a look at the trailer. And what's incredible about this is just how young the directors were. You know, this was a real movement mm. that came from the heart. You know, it was it was a piece of avant-garde cinema. And Festen is a classic example of that. Um, very simple story, uh, family celebration. And Festen means celebration. Correct. Uh, a disparate, dysfunctional family coming home to celebrate their father's birthday. What could be simpler? And yet the whole thing spectacularly, spectacularly disintegrates. Mm. And you can even see um, the, the fuzziness of the, the mise-en-scene. It's like you're in the room with these guys, mm. and seeing their emotion. It's like a family video, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Um, and it's just, it, it's just a wonderful, wonderful depiction of anger and hatred uh, mm. and disillusionment. And secrets. Secrets, lies. It's uh, very intense as well. Absolutely, and raw, raw emotion. And it's that graininess, that, that sense of found footage that really makes it sing, really makes it tick. Alongside some fantastic performances. Absolutely fantastic performances. Um, I'm not convinced that all of those shots, by the way, were shot handheld or any form of tripod whatsoever. Mm. But, you know, uh, that's kind of not the point. Just a wonderful film. I'd thoroughly recommend anyone watching it. I spoke to a couple of people um, the other day about what they made of Festin. So, oh, very good. Um, this is what they thought of it. Uh, I thought it was a really good film. Um, it was really original. It, uh, when I was watching it, it felt really real. And the story was verifying, but in, a, you know, in an exciting kind of way. It involves deep, dark family secrets. And it's, it's just really uncomfortable. It's not nice at all to watch. Yes, I definitely recommend a, a viewing. Do it as soon as you can. Enjoy in a perverted sort of way. I saw that film, I saw Festen first when I was at university um, and I'd never seen anything like it. So yeah. what's next as your film number two? Yeah, well, um, film number two is in many ways just as intense as and even more intense than Fest in other ways. It's Lars von Trier's Breaking the Waves. Let's have a look at the trailer. Wow. Just the sheer emotion of this. I, I would say this is almost a post-dogmy film, insofar as obviously it was von Trier doing it. Um, you know, it has all it has it has actual sex scenes if the rumours are to be believed in them. Um, but it's very well shot. I mean, I think a lot of time mm. has been put into making it look less well shot than it actually is. Yeah. Um, the story is just so emotional, and you can tell that what sort of von Trier did was he, um, the uh, the form to really to 
to really extract as much of the emotion as possible. Mm. But um, Emily, very simply, this story is of a, uh, a girl with learning disabilities mm -hmm. who is seduced by a, a man who works in an oil rig. She lives in Scotland. Mm -hmm. And he's very much in love with her. She's very much in love with him. Unfortunately, what happens, as you can see there, is he has an accident on the rig and he's paralysed from the neck down. Wow. And he's so much in love with her that he asks her to... Um, find other men mm -hmm. and come and talk to him about it. Wow. Um, and she's utterly bereft. She's, she utterly doesn't understand what's happening to her. She's mm -hmm. a very religious person. Mm -hmm. um, and she doesn't understand what's happened to her. There's, there's, a very, there's, 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 there's very strong religious imagery in it. Some would say it's slightly overwrought. Mm -hmm. And again, that's part of this sort of <laughs> the smile, if you like, with which uh, these filmmakers make these films. Uh, I think Lars von Trier said in an interview that he, he suspects that he went a little bit too far with the religious imagery in this, and I, I suspect mm. it's probably correct. But it's just such an incredibly emotional film. Mm. And stunning Scottish scenery. Um, just, a, just a stunning movie. I remember watching it the first time and um, just being absolutely blown away. I couldn't sleep for days. So what is your final dogma film that we're going to look at? Uh, change of pace uh, for this one. It's uh, another Lars von Trier uh, joint, as I think the technical term is. It's The Idiots. OK, let's have a look. The story of a commune of people, all mm -hmm. of whom uh, act in their phrase like they're idiots. Um, we have to warn you there are scenes of nudity about to happen. This is very much a kind of cinema verite type mm -hmm. uh, film. You know, there's, there's lots of talking to camera, there's interviews. It's, it kind of shows the, the flexibility, you know, the, the breadth of the dogma concept. Mm. I mean, this is essentially a concept that has no real philosophical or aesthetic merit to it. Mm. And yet he manages to eke so much emotion out of it. And so much humour. I mean, it is hilarious in parts. It's utterly offensive in other parts. It's in very bad taste. Mm. But that combination of raw emotion, bad taste, genuine warmth mm -hmm. in bits, and that kind of, that student filmmaker smile that we've referred to all the way through, yeah. it just makes it a compelling watch. I mean, Dog Me happened, Dog Me won. Okay. Um, I mean, if you look at something like The Blair Witch Project, which came around this time as well, it's not a Dog Me film. It was very carefully mm. put together, very carefully curated internet marketing campaign around yeah. it. Um, but there were already sort of examples of this kind of um, happening, mm. to, use a, to use a sort of term from theatre. It's kind of incidental movie, you know, this discovered, this found footage, as you call it, happening across the world. Um, this all owes itself, or owes its, uh, owes its reality to the stuff that the Dogme guys were doing, yeah. you know. It's about saying, actually, the emotional intensity of a piece, the emotional intensity of a situation can be magnified when it's lo-fi yeah. rather than hi-fi. And this is actually something that, you know, uh, if you want to get academic about this, this is something that Marshall McLuhan, great American media academic, was talk Canadian media academic, sorry, was talking about in the 60s when he talked about hot and cool media. So, you know, hot media was this kind of high-intensity, hi-fi um, thing, you know, that that sort of uh, it hit a certain bit of our soul. The lo-fi media, the cool media, about improvisation, it was kind of, it was stuff that came out of the radio tube. Mm. You know, it was stuff that 
talk to us in a different way. Yeah. And Dogme was part of that tradition. And the stuff you see today, when you see uh, modern movies uh, involving people being killed on a webcam or something yeah, yeah. like that, mm. you know, I mean, pretty nasty stuff, but you feel the intensity of it. And that owes its... It's that rawness, it's that it's, cutaway of all yeah, of the, exactly. the production gloss um, to get right down to the And the, the progenitor was Dogme. So as I say, I think Dogme won fundamentally. The people won and the, the directors involved in it are still involved today in the film industry, many of them, and, and, are, and, and are very successful. That speaks volumes as well. Ash, thank you so much for speaking through those films with us. Pleasure. It's been lovely having you join us and um, we look forward to hopefully having you back again. Anytime. Thank you. Some really fascinating information there. I have to admit, I was aware of the Dogme movement and I'm a huge fan of Lars von Trier, but I haven't seen really that many films that fall into this movement. Mm. If the listeners want to find out more on this topic, and I certainly am going to, to find yeah. out a bit more, please do check out the links in the video audio file description box. Here at Film Focus, we love to speak with special individuals from the world of film and television, and this episode is no exception. This week we're focusing on highly accomplished multi-camera director and live events producer Peter Minura. I caught up with him a few days ago at the BBC to talk about the art of directing multi-camera for live TV, the media landscape of today and his top tips for anyone wanting to break into the industry. And I know there are a lot of people out there who do want to break into the industry. I'm here at the BBC today in London and joined by Peter Minura, who is Head of Digital Development for BBC Arts. Hi Peter, thanks for joining us. Pleasure. You've had an impressive career working at the BBC over 30 years. One of your key roles during this time has been as a multi-camera director on live broadcasts, most notably so for the proms. Can you describe in a nutshell what a multi-camera director actually does? A multi-camera director works either in a studio or in an outside broadcast. It's working in a gallery situation with a multiple camera setup, anything from two or three cameras to 14 or 16, and choosing the shots, working with a vision mixer who cuts the cameras and a script supervisor who often calls the shots. It's different to the work of a single camera director or a documentary filmmaker because you are dealing with multiple cameras and often multiple other sources. So I'd like to wish everybody the very best of luck. It's a pleasure working with you. Three minutes to start a And looking search. forward to having a lot Three of fun minutes. tonight. Just listen carefully and if there are any problems, we'll work together to sort them out. In many situations, you yourself are generating a script, in other words, a camera script which is pre-prepared, which has numbered shots and shot descriptions, and not any shot descriptions, a shot may have instructions to a camera, in other words, start on a mid-shot, zoom into medium close-up over 25 seconds. So there's a lot of preparation as well as the spontaneous work of directing a live or a pre-recorded show. So it's kind of very intense and you can't afford to miss a beat. It's certainly intense. Despite preparation, you always have to be able to react mm -hmm. to the unexpected. If you're doing any kind of live event, things always happen in a slightly different way to the way that you've planned them. So as you were saying then about unpredictable elements working in live TV, what's the most bizarre or challenging situation that you've come up against? Um, any secrets from the OB truck? Let's deal with the secrets first. I mean, I think the thing that I would say is that 
a few years ago, I was thinking, I wonder if this job that I'd originally trained in will eventually disappear. Now I think that the exact opposite is true, which is that the notion of live events and online streaming and lots of different organisations, be it the Royal Shakespeare Company or the National Theatre, now doing their own streaming means that the craft, and it is a craft of the multi-camera director, is probably in more demand than it has been for 20 years. So I suppose the first thing is to be said is that on the whole it's something that it's good if you're trained in it. When I was starting as a young filmmaker and director, everybody wanted to make films. And a lot of people, in a way, poo-pooed the role of a multi-camera director, seeing it as somehow being less creative. Now, because I was interested in music, I wanted to be a multi-camera director as well as a single-camera director because I realised that in order to work with the music that I love, I'd need to be able to multi-camera direct. And what I found was that it was the most fantastic discipline because... As a filmmaker, you don't cut sequences as you go. Yeah. Whereas a multi-camera director, you do. Your shots have to cut together. You have to build sequences live, maybe over a thousand shots in a two-hour concert. You are storyboarding. You're thinking about framing, you're thinking about shot sizes, you're thinking about the speed of shot development. And then you do it. I found that doing that enormously enhanced my craft as a filmmaker because when I was on location shooting, I could and was immediately thinking about sequences. Yeah. So that's, that's the first secret, which is that I think it's a sort of a hidden secret. I encourage anyone who's interested in directing to think about multi-camera because even if you're you talking to me in this small BBC room now, let's say you're covering it on three cameras. Straight away, I would think, right, you've got one camera that is giving you a two shot and two other cameras that are cross shooting giving you singles. Straight away you need to direct the cameras because clearly you don't want both both cameras that are cross-shooting pointing at the same person. That's very simple. Even there you need that degree of preparation and as you multiply the complexity of the event that you're covering and the number of cameras, your technique then needs to expand. So that's, that's the, the basic stuff. Bizarre and challenging situations. You always get bizarre and challenging <laughs> situations in multi-camera. I suppose one of the, uh, the most interesting was I was invited by the city of St. Petersburg to produce their 300th anniversary concert. We had 47 heads of state in the audience. So one of the challenges was getting through the security and actually getting to the show to in fact do it. Fortunately, the American president, who was at that time Bush, decided not to come because that would be even... That's quite fortunate. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) but 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 that was a matter of working in an unfamiliar city, in a challenging environment, in the middle of a security lockdown. It was predictably crazy because we only got a run through of most of the show the night before. I can remember my director, Ross McGibbon, worked through the night and then we were doing it live on BBC Two the next night. And that was a big one. We weren't only, as it were, working for the BBC, we were representing the BBC and I suppose our BBC way of doing things in a foreign city Mm -hmm. at a very high profile moment. So how did you go about getting into the industry? What was your first role? How did you break in? Well, I lost my job before I even started. (laughs) Um, because I was supposed to start as a studio manager in radio. Around the time I was due to start, having been offered a job, I was told that the BBC was suspending um, production recruitment because they had to do the first round of cuts. This was in the early years of the Thatcher government, so Mm -hmm. that was tough. So I eventually started on a very short-term contract as the planning assistant to the controller of Radio 4. And then straight after that, I went into what was then BBC Enterprises, now BBC Worldwide, and I was one of the founding members of the 
BBC home video unit at a time when there were only three video outlets in the whole of the UK. So yeah, as always, there's never a straightforward way into the BBC. No, well, if you were to try and give some advice to somebody starting out, I know there's no straightforward way in. What would you suggest to somebody who fancies the idea of working in film and TV? I think the huge change since I was starting, and it's a positive one, is that technology is absolutely available to use now. We've got our phones on the table, we could make a film, we could do a Periscope live broadcast right now. Mm -hmm. So I think the first thing is, there's no excuse now if you're interested in working in film and TV in not having any experience, yep. not being able to show what you've done. And the first thing I'd say is, you know, make sure if you're thinking about it, A, that you're using the kit that's around you, thinking about shooting with a camera, thinking about framing, thinking about sequences, um, looking around you if you're into film and feature film and television, look at it critically. Um, think how that could apply to your own practice. Shoot things, edit things, have examples of your work that if you're applying for a job or an internship you can show. People have always been fixated, as I was, about getting into the BBC specifically. Um, but there are just so many other ways that you can work in media now. It's not just about being a filmmaker. You should be thinking about your skills as a stills photographer, as a video journalist, and somebody who can write. And social media now as and well. And of course social media, yeah. So, and also being proactive and creating your own content. That's kind of the key thing there. Yeah. Great. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Peter. Emily, it's been a pleasure. Thanks very much. We often focus on film roles in this segment, I've thought, but I think it's really good to hear about the TV side of things mm. um, and, and about how it's really helpful to have many strings to your bow in order to be more marketable. So many people leaving university, so many people wanting to get into films. Anything so. that can give you that USP. Exactly, yeah, yeah, exactly. If you caught our previous episodes, you know that Sarah is on an exciting journey to watch over 500 films in the next year. That's on average a whopping 48 films a month. Sarah, can you give us an update on your progress? Um, what's your favourite film that you've watched since we last spoke? A huge undertaking. I thought this would be so easy. So easy, because I watch films all the time. But I've uploaded 248 films to YouTube so far. 248? I've watched a load more, though. My favourite films since we last spoke were The Ones Below, which is kind of like a bit of a strange art house BBC film. Love and Friendship, which is um, a yes. lovely costume drama yeah I really loved that everybody wants some the new Richard Linklater film which is just fabulous I adored it and Whiskey Tango Foxtrot which I know has divided audiences a little but I really enjoyed it so if you had to pick one out of those which one everybody wants some is so feel-good it's set in the 80s it's set in college life and it's really vibrant and wonderful and it reminds me of when I was that age, so everybody Fantastic. wants some, A definitely. Nice nostalgic journey there on yeah, that film. Yeah, 100%. I love learning about your recent cinematic discoveries, Sarah. If you'd like to follow Sarah's impressive journey, go to YouTube and search for Sarah 500 Film Challenge. We'll include a link on our blog page, realvision.wordpress.com. 
there's also a place to comment and suggest films for her to watch. So make sure you keep an eye out for my top 10 movies from the challenge after my 250th review. I wanted to do a bit of a rundown of all of the ones that I've especially liked. Now, from my challenge update to what's happening on the Isle of Man, there's always something happening in the vibrant, independent film community on the island. So what's the latest everybody should know about? Many Man in Shorts members have been involved in a production over the last weekend. The short film Touch Paper was one of the projects chosen at last year's Pitch Fest, pitching competition for the Isle of Man Film Festival. The UK production team who wrote and directed the 50-minute drama were delighted with how the shoot went, praising the Manx-based filmmakers who made up the majority of the crew. This year, the Isle of Man Film Festival is gearing up to be a cracker. The first tickets for the festival went on sale last week for the outdoor screening at Castle Russian in association with Manx National Heritage and it sold out within, I think, 36 hours, and that was for Labyrinth. You like Labyrinth, don't you, Sarah? I really like Labyrinth. You do? Yeah, I, could see I had you, a little smile to myself then. <laughs> <laughs> Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves is also going to be screened um, in Castle Russian on Friday the 9th of September. Um, tickets for the other events will be released in due course. The festival's short film competition has had its final submissions in, and they will be judged, and then the winners will be screened on the Sunday ahead of the film festival. This year's Pitch Fest is still open for applications for another few days. Pitching teams can win up to 7,500 towards their short film production. A really, really good amount to get your short film off the ground there. Thank you for joining us for our eighth episode of Film Focus. It's been absolutely fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> Please check out the links in the audio and video description boxes below for more from Film Focus. You'll be able to find a blog post of this episode over on our site featuring related links, movie posters, trailers and a summary of our thoughts this week. There's also a space to leave your comments and have your say. We'd love to hear from you. Also, a little reminder that Film Focus is also available on iTunes, so do search for Film Focus on your podcast app. We'll be back soon with more from both Sarah and myself. See you then. So that's a wrap on this week's episode. If you'd like to discover more, find us on Facebook. Simply search for Film Focus. For screenings, reviews and filmmaking opportunities, right here in the Isle of Man. Thanks for listening to Film Focus with Emily Cook. Happy movie going. Happy movie going.